everyone. Welcome to His Film, Her Movie, the podcast that answers the question, to what lengths will one married couple go to to make the other watch some films that they love? I'm Jordan. I'm Lauren. And we're here two weeks in a row. Yay! We didn't gaslight anybody. <laughs> we'll be back. And it's the second week of our future classics season. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So last week was Uncle Gems. Yes, it was. That was my choice. This week is your choice. So, mm-hmm. which film did you end up going with? I picked uh, the 2020 film um, Promise, Promising Young Woman by Emerald Fennell. Yes, written and directed by her. Yeah, the woman who plays, um, well, what's her face in The Crown? Uh, she plays. Um, oh, is it? Is it? Does she play? Um, one second, one second, one second. Prince Charles' wife now. Oh, Camilla Packer Bowles. Camilla Packer Bowles. She plays Camilla, Camilla Packer Bowles in The Crown. Very well. Oh, and she's in Call the Midwife. Is she? Yeah, she's in Call the Midwife. All oh, right. Well, so this was actually her first film, I think. So it'd be interesting to see our thoughts on that. But before mm-hmm. that, like always, you can get in touch with the show on Twitter, on Facebook, at, at his film, her movie. Yes. Um, on Instagram as well. You can email the show at hisfilmhermovie.com. Mm-hmm. We are still one of the podcasts <clears throat> of the Pod Syndicate networks. You can go over, check out other shows like Film Bastards, Chinstroke versus Punter, The Iron Sequel. What else is the Rewatch Project? Et al. Et al. <laughs> Et al. And yeah, I say we always start the show with what has been keeping us entertained. And instead of having four months, I can say what's been keeping you entertained over the last seven days um well uh i watched the first episode by myself and then you kind of joined in yeah and we watched uh the netflix three-parter most hated man on the internet and the way i described it to people from work is you've got to watch it it's really good i've got a satisfied satisfied ending i still don't think it was good enough right of a satisfied ending. It's basically about the guy who created Is Anyone Up, who, which was revenge porn before, well, it was like the start of revenge mm. porn and before revenge porn was illegal. As I know it's illegal in the UK. I don't believe it's yet illegal in the US. Right. Um, there was some information about that towards the end. And if it is, I don't think it's in every state. But he was basically a monster. <laughs> Absolutely no empathy whatsoever. It's just one of those who saw like this crazy opportunity and didn't ha- have any any morals of what he was actually doing to people. Nope, no. Nope. Uh, to be honest, in a lot of the stuff, the reasons we get regarding his viewpoints, we can get to when we talk about promising young woman. Yes, and talking about like the the role of the victim. And can we just blame Andrew Tate for most of these things? Well, yeah, really. Why All not? His fault. Why not? But what about this uh, really caught your eye? Because for me, it's, I think, the ending, which you said wasn't as satisfying, but that wasn't, yeah. the, uh, that wasn't the, like, the ending of the documentary. That was just the ending of the actual the sentence that he got at the yeah, end the of it. Yeah, the sentence that he it, got. That, that was very underwhelming because it was so lax, where yeah. you really want something a bit more strict and a bit more... I did kind of love, so really sorry, spoilers, he does get sentenced in the end, and it's literally for like, a year, a year mm. and a bit, Max. <laughs> the judge banned him from any social media from the rest of his life, which did kind of tickle me a yeah. little bit because he was like, that's how he got his fame. That's how he thought he was going to forever be famous and grow this horrific brand. Um, so now that he is not allowed on it anywhere, I just think he's like, brilliant. Really hit him where it hurts. What really made me interested in watching this was just that it, like, we grew up in the era of like MySpace mm. and the very start of Facebook. And really, when we started going on the internet, they always describe it as being a lawless place. It really was when we started going mm. on it. And this was all happening more in the US than it was in the UK. I think it was known over here, but not very well. So it became like a, sort of place for people over there to go and laugh and see things and submit people before it got like really 
serious and mm. like life destroying. But it just kind of harked back to that time where people are going, oh, well, you shouldn't take pictures and you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't have done this. Nobody thought about that back then. They thought of getting your, of your email getting hacked. Yeah, maybe big like CEOs and companies, but just a normal person on the street. You didn't think about that. You didn't think about any of this sort of stuff. So stuff that was happening was just really foreign and quite scary to like the average person absolutely terrifying because it's again we grew up i think thankfully we were i'd say on the bordering of adulthood so we kind of understood what like what what was happening and things like that but i always then feel about the generation after us where they've just known nothing but it yeah so when you're talking about like <clears throat> the, the hacking of things, the sending of nudes, the 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 the, the leaks. Because I mean, this is all was it all like pre? Because it was the, like twenty twelve, I think, was, when they when you join so it. There was so. the, there, there was a big, I mean, infamous celebrity leak in like 2013, 2014. Oh, what was that called again? The fappening. That was it. The fappening. Oh, yeah, such a bad <laughs> word. But so, but that really shone a light on it because it, it was people's personal things being aired out and then but even with the celebrities you got the well if you didn't take pictures they wouldn't be out there yeah but what the argument exactly what the argument was is like no somebody's actually breached and stole them from somebody's well what most of it i think was to do with cloud and things like that like if you delete them from your phone it doesn't delete from the cloud and, and the cloud's already there and the guy who was yeah. think, hacking them, who I believe got put in jail after it for quite a long time. Yeah. For again, for youngsters, I mean, I'm, although I'm not a youngster anymore, I'm married, so I don't really need to do this. <laughs> um, I don't think it diminishes or not diminishes or stops people doing it now. No, I don't think so either. I think but I it, think I think the mum put it in a really good way when the police was like, "Oh, well, your daughter shouldn't have taken those pictures," and this was the police saying that the mum was basically so she took pictures on a polaroid and put them in her drawer in her bedroom mm. and somebody broke in you would then take that seriously and they were like well yeah no, this is exactly the same it's just email it's exactly the same yeah so it's yeah it's one of those things where you again it's with the victim the victim shaming of just because you're doing something that is i think societally seen as either risque or rude or sexual yeah that instantly get demonized yeah exactly exactly and, which isn't great but again yeah i quite like the document it's very very simple it's just your normal true crime really told through talking heads the mum was great the mom, that mom, that woman oh absolutely got her own daughter's pictures down and then just decided fuck you i'm gonna take you down to the guy and try to get every single picture taken down. Mm. Um, stepdad, I think I saw him described on TikTok as a welted candle of a man. <laughs> Wilted candle of a man. Um, absolutely no help, even though he was his sister. Yeah. No help whatsoever. Um, and just the women who were seriously, seriously affected by it. I think it's definitely worth a watch. It's only three episodes. I think each episode's maybe like an hour. Um, so you watch it like over three nights or something. Yeah. It was quite interesting. Um, I think it was quite fun looking back and <laughs> looking at like this this guy's poor girlfriend. She's a very beautiful girl, but you look at her and you're like, you grew up in the MySpace era. There's just something about her that screams like artistic MySpace photo. It's where the only photos of you that exist are from certain angles yeah. that have been Done on MySpace. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just that sort of like microcosm of time. Yeah. Um, so yeah. But I'd really recommend people watching it. Cool. Even if you just want to get angry at somebody for a couple of hours and then see them see justice happen. Yeah. So the first thing I want to talk about is a bit of an 80s fan favorite and probably has in it <clears throat> quite possibly one of my favorite Robert De Niro performances. And that is Martin Brest's 1988 comedy caper, Midnight Run. And one of the most beautiful things about this movie is its simplicity, like Mm -hmm. the simplicity of its plot, 
De Niro is this hard-hitting bounty hunter who has to travel from New York to LA to pick up a criminal on the run, played by Charles Grodin, um, who is an old mob accountant who embezzled $15 million from the head of the mob and donated it to charity. Um, so what he has to, he goes to LA and has to bring him back from LA to New York to get processed. However, given that it is an ongoing investigation with the FBI, they get involved. Then the mob get involved because they want to get their revenge too. So it becomes this old school chase movie <clears> where <throat> one person is chasing the next and other guys are then chasing them. Okay. And on and on. And like it's a well-treaded structure and you can absolutely see this there's some sort of like 40 screwball comedy in another life like we'd say Clark Gable or Gary Cooper in the De Niro role and like a Jimmy Stewart type in the Grodin part and like the script has that same zip and sharp comedy um, to it that, that absolutely feeds into the energy of those older movies and like in a way it's like it's it's like a weird cousin to say it happened one night which we watched mm-hmm. on the show of like in its structure, it's, it's as more and more people get involved in the chase, it has that m- bit more crazy energy. But the shining light of Midnight Run is, and yes, it's a comedy, and yes, it's funny, but there really aren't any jokes in the film, and all the performances are part and parcel, all delivered pretty straight. And what makes it so so funny is it's one of the best films that's filled with so much sarcasm and shouting obscenities at each other at a very high volume that (laughs) there's ever been like it's the way you make De Niro funny like you don't ask him to be funny because he doesn't really I don't think really he has it in him you just ask him to live to deliver what's in the script and how he would deliver in any other movie and let the situation do the work Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and like there are, there's a few scenes in this where De Niro and the ever incredible Joe Pantoliano are on other ends of the phone. One is on the road, the other one's in his um, Bill's Bondsman office in LA and just screaming at each other for minutes on end. And it's, it's just some of the film's greatest moments. And yeah, it's a, a film that relies on its chemistry between the two leads to I mean De Niro and Grodin have it in bunches they have it so much actually that like I'm amazed that they never start across each other as leads again okay like I would love to see them well maybe not now but back in the day of like the early 90s mm-hmm, mm-hmm. have another one of these sort of movies maybe not not exactly the same but they just bounced off each other brilliantly and yeah it's as I said, it's like it's easily one of the most rewatchable films of the eighties, and it's just one of those where every scene delivers. Mm-hmm. Every scene is just great, and that I've got some more. But have you seen anything else, or you want to talk about anything else? Um, for me, I just reading loads. I, I literally walk down the stairs, and you're like, I've finished another book. Yeah, so uh, got Kindle Unlimited. Got it on the eighteenth of July. Today it is the. 4th of August and Kindle Limited has saved me nearly £23 <laughs> in books. It's great. I've just been reading stuff. Just been, I think that's it at the moment. I've needed like a break mm. from um, like screen. Yeah. And I found that it's been really, really useful uh, just to sort of I say not stare at screen, stare at Kindle. <laughs> but it's different. I know it's what you a mean. different screen, stare at a different style screen. <laughs> um, but yeah, apart from that, like we're not like a Love Island house. So we haven't no. watched any of that stuff. Um, well, well we, we, we watched the finale of Drag Race. Yes, we did watch the finale of Drag, Drag Race. All Star Season 7, um, All Winners Season. Yeah, and the Best Queen won, obviously. The Best Queen. That's another thing we watched. Oh, yes. So, but then, no, but then we can't say otherwise. Then, if people are wanting to watch it, we'll then spoil, uh, spoil okay, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what we'll, we will say regarding Drag Race, like, 
We are Drag Race fans. We are. And we do watch it. However, the last few seasons of the British one and the American one have been a little bit underwhelming. Yeah. Like, you, definitely, you, you're definitely. watching it more out of, I it's, want it's to, there. I want to see, so that way then I get the jokes for future seasons. And yeah. I get who the characters are and the memes. But, or the memes. Maybe. But All-Star Season 7 is like, possibly the best season of Drag Race that there has actually been. Oh, it's definitely it's definitely good. Like everybody says like the All Stars are good seasons. This one has got a good twist to it. And I feel like the twist just just led it to being more fun. Yeah, that's what I thought. It, even, wasn't as cut, it, it wasn't as cutthroat. Yeah. But it was cutthroat in like a different way. But it, it was because even in the All-Star seasons, it is a bit cutthroat because they're still trying to win because they haven't had a win. They want to be crowned. But these Whereas queens have already been crowned. Each one of them have been crowned. Each one of them have won the money. They don't, don't have anything to prove. And it's instantly seen, even from the first episode, that, yeah, they are there to compete, but it's just having fun. There's mm-hmm. There's no real animosity. There's no real arguments. It's just everybody kind of taking the piss out of each other. Yeah. And it's such a friendly, friendly atmosphere. And yeah, it just made that season, especially like just so, so enjoyable. Yeah. It just made it more fun. Yeah. It felt like you were more, you know, like the jokes and the humor and being able to see how people had grown and changed and everything. Um, well, I always find it quite funny. I always have like friends going, your husband will watch Drag Race with you. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. My husband has favourite drag queens. My husband will go, oh, look at that wig. That wig doesn't look very good. But I always explain it to them like, you love a competition. You love a sport. I don't feel like there's really many sports that give give a push. I, I don't think you wouldn't watch. Mm-hmm. You love a winner and you love a loser and you love to see them compete and win. And so... When you first, I feel like when you first started watching Drag Race, it was because you were like, well, I want it. she really likes this yeah, and yeah. I want to try and like well, get to know was. it. But then you were like, oh, people get kicked out? Well, the Ooh, first, I, I actually what's remember, this? I remember when, because you kind of started watching it when you started dating me, really. Mm-hmm. And I remember you saying, oh, I'm watching RuPaul's Drag Race. And I was like, cars? <laughs> I was like, no, drag queens. <laughs> oh, right, okay. <laughs> But like it's one of those things where it has become a phenomenon. Like as, as I was saying, like I had a three-hour Facebook message conversation with yeah, you did. Um, with Ma- well, actually, I'm not sure if it's on Twitter. It was Max Ren on Twitter, Stu Bar, and he's a guy who I first met at Fright Fest years and years and years ago. Big movie guy, big genre guy. Mm-hmm. But we had a three-hour Facebook conversation regarding like All Star Season Seven, who we think we should win, past seasons our favourite drag queens and things like and that. And what I, I just... loved was not once did you come to me and you at, didn't you, you didn't come and ask me a question. This was all knowledge that oh, I, absolutely. that you have caught through watching it. Yeah. I think you literally came around, I think maybe you were saying one thing and I was like, oh yeah, do you mean this queen? And you were like, yep, that one, bye. And then she like left and I was like, okay, I'm obviously not part of this conversation, <laughs> but that's fine. So, that's yeah, fine by it, me. It absolutely um, encompasses all different <clears throat> societies and groups and honestly th- this season was really really strong actually the canadian one which i think is on currently mm-hmm. has actually started strong i've, I've heard okay so let's have a little look out for that we will do we will do um for me i've got a couple more okay so i was listening to the big picture podcast and they had an episode with Quentin tarantino and roger avery who, who themselves actually have a new podcast out there, which, like, not to go on a tangent, but that's really the lay of the land now. Like, we're general podcasters, and, and given our subject, and given that we are like a film show, being in the same listening pool to a podcast that is hosted by Quentin Tarantino, it just means that it's kind of impossible for... I'm just like quote unquote normal podcasts mm-hmm. to find an audience now because it's great because I get to hear Quentin Tarantino talk on a weekly podcast because it's well, there's nothing much better than that. Yeah. But for me as a podcaster, it's just sort of like when I started podcasting in like 2008, it, it was busy there, but it was busy because there's many numbers. 
There mm-hmm. wasn't directors. There wasn't actors. There wasn't. It's just the actual pool that you're diving into is so so competitive. But I get that, but I also feel like that just shows then that even if we only have like a couple of people who listen but like us, mm-hmm. then we can count ourselves lucky, and that we're in that same pool as people like Tarantino. It, it gives it a little bit more of a this is a thing because mm. there's still people who look at podcasts and go oh, you do a podcast and you do this it's, it's, like, it's weird yeah. though because like your yeah, podcasts are like mainstream now and they have been since for, but probably say for a good god seven or eight, eight years and I think it really was Serial that kind of mm-hmm. made it blow up but alas like the big picture podcast what I was talking about so they did a movie draft of the films released in 1987. The best year, obviously. Best year <laughs> ever. And Great people were born that year. <laughs> and, like, although it was mostly filled with films that I knew and I had seen, there was one pick of which I actually didn't know and I, I had never even heard of. And that one pick was a film called Three O'Clock High. Um, directed by a guy called Phil Janu, who was 25. When he made it, he came from the, the, the filmmaking school of Amazing Stories with Steven Spielberg. But the story <clears> is <throat> that there's this new kid in school who's rumored to be a bit of a psycho. Our lead, this nerdy kid called Jerry, gets assigned to do a piece in the school paper on him. What, because he's a psycho? Well, in a way, yeah, and because he's a new student. Oh, okay. So people haven't gone, he's weird, right about him. There's a little bit about that, to be honest. Oh, okay. Um, but when Jerry touches Buddy, he flips out, and Buddy challenges Jerry to a fight after school. And, and, and like, when I watched, when I sat down to watch this movie, I didn't really expect an 80s teen comedy version of High Noon. But it 100% is. And you know what? It works. It's goofy and it's silly and it's very, very 80s and kind of cartoony in a way. But again, it it works well in that setting and it completely gets and amps up that escalating realisation from Jerry as the time ticks on continues to tick over throughout the school day that his attempts to try and stop this fight like the resistance is futile <laughs> the resistance is futile um, so and like the crazy story is that Spielberg actually produced this movie okay um, because he was wanted to make a John Hughesian teen movie but after seeing it he actually disowned it because he it wasn't John Hughes enough and it had a little bit of a dark streak through it. I can tell you why it wasn't John Hughes enough. Because it wasn't made by John Hughes. It's true. It's true. But yeah, but like, I think that's a positive aspect to me because it's absolutely trying to do its own thing. And I mean, it's not like an incredible piece of cinema, but it's the very definition of a cult movie. Mm-hmm. And you've got, like, you can completely imagine, like, kids passing the VHS around their friend groups in the late 80s and early 90s saying you've got to see this movie and it being a favourite of somebody of that like 11, 12, 13 year old yeah. kid in the, in, in, the, in the early 90s but yeah it's it's so of the era it's shockingly homophobic at times which isn't great but very on brand for that time mm-hmm. and it's a great 90 minute movie it, absolutely has said no fat on it delivers everything that you really wanted to it doesn't shy away from anything it's bonkers there's i mean there's a great scene in it where the lead character is trying to get detention because in his, in his things like biggest detention he can't be out of the school at three o'clock yeah yeah so like he has to give his book report and he gives his book report on this erotic novel sort of porno mag right. and he, he lights up a cigarette and he's walking around the thing he's walking around his class and he's trying to just 
get himself in. He like seduces the teacher whilst doing it, but not meaning to. <laughs> and it's it's it really is. It's it's actually really good. And the final film that I want to talk about is one of those that has been on my watch list for years, and mm-hmm. I've just never got round to it. And that's John Schlesinger's 1976 thriller Marathon Man, starring Dustin Hoffman, Roy Scheider. Laurence Olivier, and it's the story of this young college student, a PhD student, who gets drawn into the world of his older brother and of shady governmental plots and hidden Nazi war criminals. And uh, like, I mean, this Nazi war criminal played by Laurence Olivier has to come to New York to pick up some smuggled diamonds and um, that's been left by his brother when he gets into a car accident. And even though I've never seen it, like I've always loved a poster for Marathon Man because it's not really flashy or anything. It's just got Dustin Hoffman pointing a gun, but below the title in big letters, like front and center, it just says a thriller. <laughs> like it needs Nothing to read. Well, it's just, it's, it's just Marathon Man, a thriller, and it's it's sort of like it's trying to reassure its audience that do not be fooled by a title. This oh, isn't okay. about a long-distance runner. Okay. But, I mean, I'm not sure if that's correct or not, but that's always the way I've, I've, I've looked at it. It's like, Marathon Man, what's that about? But It's a thriller. It's a thriller. <laughs> but the movie itself, is it's pretty great. Um, it's definitely a film of two halves. Like, we get to know Dustin Hoffman's character, uh, Babe, in the first hour when he falls in love with a Swiss girl. But we also get to know the work of his brother Doc, played by Roy Scheider. And you have that dichotomy of the first hour of the, the, the softness of Babe's storyline and the espionage tilt of Doc's storyline and how those two blend it quite well. But it's mm-hmm. when those two storylines collide that, and in the second hour, when that does so, like it really leans into its genre. And, and it does, it becomes this full blown paranoia fueled. Thriller, uh, thriller, 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 and the funny thing about it, because don't get me wrong, it is it's a serious movie and everything like that. It's a, it's a, it's played, played very straight. But what I did enjoy is that you have this gritty seventies New York set thriller, mm-hmm. and you have Laurence Olivier as a bit of a Bond-like villain at the center of it. Like Olivier is great, and, and he does bring. Uh, certain amount of menace to the film, especially in like the most famous scene, which I think will make my next trip to the dentist a worrying one. But he also has this steel bracelet, like contraption that turns into a knife. Yeah, okay. I've just like I understand the dentist thing. Yeah. Yeah. But he has this, God, no. He has this bracelet that like fires a knife out of it i'm just like it doesn't it just does not belong in this sort of a movie that belongs in a bond movie like How especially big a bracelet as he got but it's like a full on like i mean you talk about like, like, maybe a two, like, a, like a two inch bracelet that's which looks completely out of place but yeah it yeah it's it's kind of bizarre um but it's it's out of place in a fun way because it it just feels so so of its time mm-hmm. really, and the last thing I will say is this era of Roy Scheider in the seventies is very much what every man in his forties should aspire to be. Like he's he's the very definition of manliness, and in like in that decade, he has some of some of the work he put out in the seventies. You've got this, you've got Jaws, you've got Sorcery, you've got all that jazz, the French Connection, it's all great. And Roy Scheider is what a man should look like. So when you, when, turn, in, when you get into your 40s, you're going to look like Which is him. sooner rather than later. If I, if I look like Roy Scheider when I'm in my 40s, I think I've won life. Uh, does this mean that you're going to grow some hair? May I, I may have to get <laughs> a wig? N- no. <laughs> I saw the week the guys put on you and your stag do. <laughs> that was a no from me. <laughs> but 
but that's it for me. So it's actually a better week than last week. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's it for what we've been keeping us entertained, really. So we'll have a break mm-hmm. and we'll come back with your choice. Yeah. Hey. <clears throat> oh, you. Hi. One coffee, hold the spit. <laughs> she spat at my coffee last time. I'm back because um, I think you gave me a, a fake number the other day. Doesn't sound like me. I know. So I spent a few hours composing a like very witty, very romantic text, and then I sent that text to an oil rig worker called Red. Was he into it? Surprisingly into it. It was like immediately inappropriate, but it's not going to work out because of the oil rig. So I thought I'd try... You again. I just heard a phone ring in the back. No, you didn't. I most definitely heard a phone ring in the back. <laughs> she has to take a few imaginary calls a day. Um, look, if you're not into this, totally get it. I'm not really looking to date anyone at the moment. Right, yeah. Me neither. Would you be interested in a friendship? And I'm secretly pining for you the whole time so my choice for what i think is going to be a future classic um was the 2020 uh film by um emerald Fennell, promising young woman so this came out obviously mid-pandemic mm. um i still don't feel like a lot of people have seen it i believe in the uk it's only on Sky Movies, am I right? Yeah, so Sky actually bought the rights to it. I mean, mm-hmm. we say it wasn't made by Sky, but they didn't give it a theatrical release. No, they, they, they didn't. They made it a Sky original. Yeah, um, and not everybody has Sky. No. Nope. Um, so I feel like that's kind of really stopped it from maybe getting as much attention. Um, I have recently been seeing bits about it on TikTok. Right. So I feel like it's going to be starting to get a little bit more recognition as more people are able to stream it or buy it mm-hmm. or, you know, getting getting a little bit more access to it. But it has a huge, huge cast, um, yeah. uh, such as um, Kerry Mulligan, Bo Burnham, Alison Brie, Adam Brody, Jennifer Coolidge, Laverne Cox. And it basically follows um, a young woman called Cassie. Um, and you meet her and you just kind of think that she's down and out on life. She's hooking up with men when she's drunk. Um, but in actual fact, she's not. Um, she's got severe trauma from being in college and her friend, um, sadly killing herself after being raped and not being believed that that is what happened to her. And this whole film is basically her coping with that in her own very unusual way mm-hmm. and going about and planning her revenge on the men who put her friend through all this trauma. Um, it's, it's a strange sort of like, I feel like it's a little bit more of like slightly a horror sort of style it's got a bit of horror to it but i think it's one of the things like so what she's doing is she 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 goes out pretends to be drunk and like tricks guy not doesn't trick guys but guys taking advantage of her when they really shouldn't yeah and what's very interesting about this is and i've watched it a couple of times now this is my third time watching it is um when you first watch it you sort of go, well, how is she doing this? You're kind of very much caught up mm. in the whole story and what you're watching. And then as you watch it maybe a second time or a few other times, you realize that she's not leading these men on in any way. No. She's not saying, yes, I will come home with you. She is either just looking at them or not in like a sexual way. Like when they're asking a question, she's just like, I'm just facing you. Um, blinking at them, drinking water. She never actually verbally gives any kind of consent. It's something where when you're watching it, it feels 
you start watching it and it feels like something very familiar. You see the familiar patterns of people being drunk and going out and you kind of see where they're going with the situation. Um, and then that sudden twist of um, her just revealing herself to be sober. Like the first, the first time you see her, she's very, very, she's, she's acting very, very drunk. The men in the bar are just basically saying, you know, they put themselves in danger. She's asking for it. The guy being the nice guy and going, come on, I'll take her home. And I end up taking her back to his place. Um, and it's just the whole, when he is like starting to go down on her and trying to undress her and everything, and her going, what are you doing? What are you doing? To her sitting up and basically going, hey, what are you doing? To him completely freaking out. And she's like, but I'm not drunk, so shouldn't that be a good thing? Like, I've never said yes to anything. And you see her do that, I think, three times in this film. Um, and it's very powerful to watch it because you also realize that she's in this very vulnerable situation and nobody else is helping her. It's just her by herself, which um, is quite scary mm. to sort of watch. And the scene you talked about with Adam Brody when she's saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. It's when there's a shot where it's shooting right down on the bed mm-hmm. and you see, because up, up until that moment, you're sort of thinking, what? You think what she's what, drunk. Yeah, what, what, what kind of a film am I watching? And it, then you see your eyes completely focused. You see the tone of her voice change. The whole face changes, like a mask comes off. And then it's, then it's like, bang, That's what, this is what kind of a film that we're watching. Yeah. And it's like a slap around the face. Yeah, and I know that we've sort of, I think we've very briefly sort of touched on this before, this film um, in the podcast. But the reason why I feel it is a modern classic is that every single aspect of it um, Emerald has really made it, especially for our generation. We uh, what watching it and watch it again. There was like I know we sort of discussed about how all the men in it were men who were heartthrobs and yeah. people that we fancied when we were in our teens. And we watched TV being like, oh, they're so cute, they're so lovely. Unless you had a massive crush on McLovin, but I didn't know anybody who had that crush. <laughs> but he's in it, and he's great. Yeah. Um. Uh. And Schmidt from New Girl, who I looked through the top cast and he wasn't in the top cast, which is an absolute, like, he should be in it. Um, Yeah. It, but then, like, little things, um, like, when we were watching it and there's, like, an instrumental sort of thing, uh, thing playing when she's walking up to the guy's cabin um, dressed as a stripper for the stag do yeah, yeah. and it's toxic by britney spears playing yeah. but i didn't realize it until you get like to a certain point and i was like the very iconic where she goes up high yeah. up and down I was like toxic it was also the throwback songs like paris hilton yeah i have not heard paris hilton in so long but you play that song i instantly remember being like a teenager and seeing that video of Paris Hilton and it's like I could see people watching this and be like oh I remember listening to this song thinking about like my first love and all this it's all very emotive yeah. everything's being picked for like a certain how it looks or how it sounds even I feel like the camera the everything is very much in shot straight down the middle but then if you look around the edges everything is slightly blurred which makes you feel like a little bit like an Instagram filter. Which am I just stealing all of your points? No, but that is a good point because I mean, one of my point was that like Emerald for now. I mean, you can't tell anything about like her, her style because it's her first film, and this mm-hmm. might just be such choices in her style for this. But she very much <clears throat> likes center framing. Yeah, she likes putting in the center framing. Like whilst I'm watching it, especially Cassie. Mm-hmm. Let's put Cassie in center frame. And not only does it look pretty, because it's just the way that film works, symmetry works well. But in my head, I was like, so what, 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 what would be the reason for that? But then I got into my head, it's like, well, 
if you're putting something in the center frame, there's nothing around it. So it's very isolating. It's yeah. very it's cutting off everything else. It's 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 getting you farther away from a connection to someone. Because yeah. you, you're very much there alone on screen. Yeah, and it's very true. Like when she starts um getting more with um Ryan, played by Bo Burnham, there is less of those type of shots. Mm. And you even see it like when she's interacting with her boss, played by Laverne Fox. And she looks so good in yeah. this. And um, it's because I've never not really seen her in a huge amount of things. Only so, Orange is the New Black. Is that... I wasn't really, I didn't really watch Orange is the New Black. So I just know her from looking great and doing interviews <laughs> on the red carpet. So it was really good for me to actually be able to watch something yeah. with her in and really enjoy it. You kind of see that a little bit more where the camera angle sort of play and it's more two of them in going yeah. in and out of focus. And then when she has like that final breakdown, it's back to being the straight down the middle mm-hmm. but even like the makeup and the fashion of this I feel is really 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 important like when it's just Cassie herself she literally just has some very light makeup chapstick that's it when she's being these drunk alter egos or the stripper she's got bright lipstick on to showcase it's a completely different person and even like little bits like when she goes out clubbing and the sort of things that she wears through the day. So, like, the stuff that she's wearing on a nighttime, um, it gives me very much, the, ho- the whole thing, the whole look, gives me the golden era of Topshop, which we all know was, like, 20 teens. It's, like, 2010. There's so many tea dresses in this of varying lengths. There's cute little jumpers that with, like, two different styles. Like, like two different colors, like geometric patterns and the going out stuff, sequins. Mm. So many sequins, so much bedazzling, so much like studied things, even like the big hoops. It gives very much like 2010 sort of top shop. And looking at it, I was like, I, I feel like I had that dress or I had that skirt when I was going out, when I was a, I say teenager, like, yeah. And I started clubbing because that was very much the style of it. And I just feel like everything has been picked to evoke something of, I think, especially millennials, teens. Because when we were teens, it was still very much slut shaming. Mm. That was very standard. And now people, they still do it, which is disgusting, but you're more likely to be ridiculed for slut shaming. It's called out a lot more and people understand a lot more, like the damage it does and how it's not the victim's fault. Um, so I feel like that is very is all styles in a way to make us think back of when things like this happened when we were younger and how we can learn from it and support people and become better people because of it. It's triggering in, in a good way for, for you know what I mean it, yeah it's it, it, it designed to trigger the people that may have have like had that experience yeah it's very very triggering and the whole iconography throughout all of this film like the reds and the pinks especially are so bright and so vibrant when you see her first walking down the street after the night and you think she's got a like, blood on her and she hasn't it's like a burger it's fine it's donuts is it a donut? Yeah. That is the most jam-filled donut I've ever <laughs> yeah. seen. Because it's like down her leg, it's down <laughs> her arm, it's everywhere. There was also like another point um, where she was again. Whereabouts did I see it? Oh, the red wine, Madison's red wine, like spilling out all over the table. Which, by the way, I love the fact that they made like, they gave Alison Breed like wine lips. Yeah. Even those little bits where it's like darker. On the inside, because she did to showcase how much red wine that woman had been drinking. But I, the the detail in that scene that I love is the fact that on Cassie's side, she's obviously topping up her red wine, but none of it's been drunk. It's a huge yeah. glass, but we just come. It's it's near it's enough to full. the brim. Yeah. So all of that I find is so so good. I wrote down so many quotes. It's like the whole. They put themselves in danger. She's just asking for it. And I said, what are you doing? 
Um, oh my God, McLovin, why do you women wear makeup? Ugh, fake feminist. Going, I just want to see the real you. And her going, what's my name? You don't even, you say we have a connection. You don't even know what my name is. And him going, but I'm a nice guy. Yeah. Um, what else in there? Just, oh, you, you're not even that hot. And why do you guys have to ruin everything? Yes, she has ruined you picking up a drunk woman and taking her home without her giving you permission. Um, the only thing I wanted to say, I, I, three things. Okay. <laughs> three things I need to say. One, Jennifer Coolidge, she looks amazing. She really, really suits brown hair. Love the fact that she's using her actual voice. Um, still playing slightly the same character. It's just there's still a little bit of like that whole innocence, slightly ditzy. But all in all, seems like her loving mom just doesn't really understand what's mm-hmm. happening. Um, one of the most powerful scenes for me is where she, where Cassie is in her mom and dad's like, it's like a reception room, living yeah. room. And it's very much the whole Baroque sort of over the top gold leaf style. Also, Alison Brie's reaction when she walks into that room is just like, what is this house? And I love it. As Cassie's just like, yeah, this is where I live. Please come into this monstrosity. But Cassie, surrounded by like these cherubs and like religious iconography, literally kneeling before a marble table with the phone with the video of Nina on it. Like she is having some sort of like she's kneeling before an altar, mm. I think was so incredibly powerful. And then the last thing is, the last thing that you, ha- that you hear from her is just that scream, that isolating scream. And I just really, really love this film, as you can probably tell, because I won't let Jordan talk and he's like looking at me as <laughs> if he's going to start laughing because he's like, I want to say this. I'm like, no, you're not allowed to say this till I've finished. But that is why I feel like this film is going to be one that it didn't get the recognition it, it could have when it I, came out by the general public. But I feel that with things like TikTok, with people putting clips up and images and all this, I think it's definitely going to go down. It's going to take a little bit longer, but I think it's definitely going to go down as being a classic. And I'm so excited to see what Emerald Fennell does next. If this is her first film, like, it's brilliant. She could not make it. She could make no other film. And I said, like, she's amazing. I love, I love her work. I already love her work. I love her in a bunch. I love her in uh, her acting. Now I love her film. She could literally do no wrong in my eyes. I'm sorry. I'll let you talk now. No, no, not all. It's great listening to you talk and hearing the passion. But like, but as soon as you said that this is a film that you were wanting to talk about this week, I've been excited. Because I, I am fully on board with this film being seen as a future, um, well, being in this season of future classics, because it's a movie that hits all of its targets, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that it goes out to hit. Mm-hmm. It's a social commentary. It's a shock film. And it's a, it's a damn, damn fine genre film as well. Mm-hmm. And like Emerald Fennell, for a debut uh, feature, came out the box swinging and made a film from a perspective and a place that only a woman could. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's full of anger and confusion and annoyance and it's vitriolic at times, but it does so in a package that is still incredibly watchable and relatable. Mm -hmm. And like you said, if this was... this film was made in the 70s or 80s. It would have been one of those women getting revenge on men by killing them. Hysterical, Matt. Hysterical woman film. Well, yeah, it would have been. Yeah, it's, it's those revenge movies. You've got things like I Spit on Your Grave. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is smarter than that. And it, it, it's not solely about revenge. No, it's not. It's about... It, living after a traumatic event trying to find your way of dealing with that and it's i think it's also about like self-reflection and self-judgment and guilt in a way because i mean it's not not only is a huge finger pointing 
um, at the male audience watching it and saying, do you think this is okay? Or even worse, have you maybe done this and are now seeing it in a different lens mm-hmm. and it's completely changing your perspective? And you, you mentioned it before about the way that Cassie spoke and the way everything, like when she was saying like what you're doing or she didn't really say no, but it absolutely takes on the idea that not seeing no is not in fact seeing yes. Yeah. And it's absolutely calling that out. And like, given that she's not out there killing folk, I was trying to think of what, what is she? And for me, she's a bit more of like a moral vigilante. Mm-hmm. She's what, scaring them. She's scaring them. Absolutely. She's scaring them in the, at that time. But then hopefully they're questioning their behaviours and will change. Yeah, hopefully they won't do it again. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like, so again, you've you brought it before that 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 original scene when you've got the the, the slut shaming, the victim cha- um victim shaming, and yeah, it's like what the scenes with those guys, and again, those are nice. I'm using air quotes, bad yeah. guys, and again, I'm I'm, I'm absolutely regurgitating, repeating everything that you've said, <laughs> but. <laughs> The one thing that gets this, and it's probably one of the genius parts about this movie, and that is the casting. Yeah. Because it's casting not only for who's good for the role, mm-hmm. it's using casting as a weapon. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, just going down, you've got Adam Brody, Seth in the OC, you've got Chris from Mids-Plass, McLovin from Superbad, you've got Max Greenfield, Schmidt from You Girl, Sam Richardson from Veep. Um, and you've got Christopher Lowell from Veronica Mars. Yeah. And it's not even Bo the male. Burnham. Bo, Bo Burnham as well. From but he's a Bo new, Burnham. But he's a new one. He's a completely different one, which we'll get into. And, but it's not even the male ones. It's the female. You've got Alison Brie, who was um, in Community, and she was like the innocent, childish one yeah. from Community. But the one that gets me, and especially, is Connie Britton, who was the centre of all that was good and moral. Um, and she was Coach Taylor's wife in Five Night Lights, but she was yes. the she was the count, guidance counsellor at the school. Mm-hmm. And her playing the dean here, it's, it's playing with our own relationships with these actors and whatever personas that they have through the roles that they've played in the past. And like that is, it's brilliant. It mm-hmm. really is. There's no other way to say it. It's like the fact that you can use casting for two different ways, like two different reasons. Mm-hmm. And if you do click on it, it brings more power yeah. and a bit more perspective to what she's actually trying to say by casting those people. Because again, they weren't just on a show. They were the innocent. They were the teen the, the, shows. The, they were the nerdy, lovable sort of, they might not. They might not have been the, like for example, they weren't that. They weren't the Ryan character in the OC. They weren't the brooding, model-looking, muscular one. It's the one that all the, the nice guy and the nice girls would have yeah. liked. And, yeah. And they seemed innocent and pleasant and polite. Yeah. But yeah, you you play them again. You don't, you don't trust a nice. Guy, if somebody ever says, "Oh, but I'm a nice guy," red flag, run away, block. Yeah, don't speak to. And that's it. And so, you, so you've got a great script, and you've got this first-time director who's just on fire, and then you've got Carrie Mulligan, who is just so so good in the movie, and I feel like. I mean, I do. I feel like the more I talk about this movie, the more praise I'm giving it. But I know that Margot Robbie was originally cast. Okay. As. Mm. Um, now I love Margot Robbie. Yeah, yeah. I think she's great, but I'm quite pleased that she wasn't. Well, yeah, cast. She, she had to drop out, and I think because that's why she's still the producer on the movie. And but like, and I don't want to sound again. I don't want to sound knock on Margot Robbie because because I think she is great. She's but great. Carrie Mulligan is a better actress than her. And even though that I think um, Robbie 
could pull off the the intense sinister scenes like incredibly well because we've seen it before. Mm-hmm. I think she could have struggled struggled in the more softer scenes, especially those with Bo Burnham. Do you think? I think she would have struggled a lot more in. Carrie Mulligan was is very good at playing the slightly dead behind the eyes type mm. thing. She's very good at displaying like the depression. And I feel that Margot Robbie, I think she'll be very good at doing that. But I just feel like Carrie Mulligan's maybe another level. It's one of those of where that. like it's one of the first reviews that came off of Promising Young Woman, I think it was in the earlier times. Mm-hmm. In it actually said that Carrie Mulligan wasn't wasn't hot enough. Yes, I remember that. Whereas, not to say anything, I, mean, I don't want to get back into the judgment people's appearances, but again, Margot Robbie could have been too attractive for that sort of yeah, role. She's going to be playing a bog standard normal. Well, well, and Carrie well, Mulligan's beautiful yeah. woman, but she, she she can pull that off. She can pull off the. I'm just a normal person. In a cardigan. She's great cardigan acting, but can like go super glam, go super, go super glam, go super not glam. And I'm talking like ball gown to trackies and a stained t shirt. Yeah. And she looks like she would be comfortable in either. Whereas I get what you mean. I feel like, I don't know if it's because in my head, I feel like Margot Robbie's quite statuesque. I don't know the height, but for, for me, it's one of those things where Kerry Mulligan, yes, she is, she's an attractive woman, but. She could be walking down a street and you wouldn't really notice her. Where Margot Robbie is the first sort of person where it's just like you're gonna see them. No she, she, she's what. not. She's not human in a way. If, if like the way she, she's like a, on a she's, different planet. She looks like a movie star she's no a, matter absolutely. what. Absolutely. Whereas I feel like yeah, Carrie Mulligan's very beautiful, but she can. She's got a movie star quality of a different kind. She can blend in. She can put a hat on her. It'd be easier. And. The ability to switch from one to the other, yeah. again, what Kerry Mulligan does in this is incredible. Yes. Really, really incredible. And there are sort of moments within this, like the scene, we've talked about Connie Britton, we've talked about the switch as well, right there. He's like, that scene in the Dean's office. I love it. It's my favourite. Is, yeah, it, it's great writing, it's great directing, It's it absolutely gets the tension of that scene. And that's, Incredibly, because like we know as an audience that Kerry Mulligan wouldn't do anything. But we still don't know because we never we saw her pick her up and then that was it. Yeah, but we we haven't seen her do anything actually violent no. at that point. Um. So I mean that scene. Then I mean, yes, you, you say you mentioned about the film for now, and it is it's it's a film made for the twenty first century, and it's a hundred percent current. It's a hundred percent relevant, and that's. Sometimes a rare thing, mm-hmm. because films can sometimes take years for society to be ready to actually hold up that magnifying glass upon itself. Yeah. So you maybe generally get these sorts of films 10 years time where you'd have time enough to analyze and see the how the zeitgeist changed mm-hmm. and to see mm-hmm. the full implications. But no, Emery Ruffinell was like, screw it. This is what's happening now. We're making it. Like, I want to make this or write and direct this film about it. Yeah, and that's what I think makes it so piercing to watch because it's not old news. No, it's exactly, still not old incredibly news. fresh with the Me Too movement and everything else. And it's, it, I think it's quite important to get across as well. It's like we're talking about this. And we're talking about very serious things. We're talking about very kind of depressing and traumatizing, traumatizing things, but. This, in, in in essence, is it's a genre movie. It's not quite fully blown horror, but it's got, it's got like these horror elements, especially in some of the scores and sort of choice of score and the intensity of some scenes. Mm-hmm, but I feel like and, it's a horror movie for some men. Yeah, but also, it's funny. <laughs> it's really funny, but it 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 still has a sense of humor, like. For me, the best joke in it is when uh, Bob Burnham's in the coffee shop. <laughs> oh, it's not that joke. Oh, okay. no, it's, it's, it is saying basically, it's like, uh, what was it? 
there's a, there's a guy who believes all the homeless people. No, I was, I was on a date with someone who said they believes all youth, homeless, homeless people should be euthanized. And he's like, but you've met, you've met my mother. And it was just like, just so sharp. Oh, see, now my favorite one is where Bo Burnham's meeting Cassie's parents yeah. for the first time. And they're like, oh, your parents would be really proud that you're a doctor. And he goes, oh, well, no, actually, they want me to be a DJ. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. That's, that's so Bo Burnham as well. Yeah. Like that, he's, it, it, he's casting. He's so tall next to Cassie. <laughs> Harry Mulligan. <laughs> they have a kiss. And I'm like, just sit down, Bo. <laughs> sit down. The kiss is going to be so much easier on your back. But like yet again, this incredibly nice, charming guy who in we're going into it. Yes, it's a should we talk about it? Should we not talk about it? I'm trying to think now because you, there's a moment in this movie that I when I first watched it, mm-hmm. I did not see coming and it blew my tiny little mind. It is the twist and yeah, this twist is such a 180 and it's whiplash and it's you really really feel for cassie at that point you do when you're just like everything that she's it's so good but But, so right for that movie as well yeah it's and then we get then we do get the final um scene with the um bachelor party and thing well the bachelor party but then the wedding as well (laughs) sorry like, right, I can't remember the actor's name. He's Schmidt in my head. Max Greenfield. We're running away. <laughs> he's just this little awkward, like, side run, like, looking behind his shoulder, and he's like, <laughs> run really quietly away. But yeah, but yeah, it's, again, it's a film that I do think is important, and I can see it. I can, one, yeah, I can see women watching it and just. Getting it, it in a completely different way. It makes to me men. really angry to watch it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. And it makes me cry every time. Like every single time I watch this film, it's made me cry. Yeah. And it is. It's. But it's quite interesting watching it with you because with you watching it with a guy, you guys don't pick up on the same things. Mm. You don't see it the same way, um, and that's just because you've not. Being conditioned to look at things a certain way. Well, that's it. But the thing is, it's, it's, there's two different audiences really mm-hmm. for this because it's. I do. I do think like it's one of those things where directions can make it. I do believe only a woman could make this movie. Yeah, one hundred percent. I feel like if a man made it, it would just be an angry. Well, I keep on seeing. I have seen people going, "Oh, it's just an angry feminist film," and it's like, yeah, but we're angry about a set thing that shouldn't be happening. Mm. You're angry about it, not, not you, yeah. but the people who get <laughs> you. You're, you're all right. We like you. Um, the, pe- the men who get angry about it get angry about it because they're being called out. They're mm. recognizing something in these nice guys that they go, well, I do that and I'm a nice guy, so I can't be a bad person. So therefore, she's got it wrong. She's just taking things. She's not taking a joke. She's not doing this. She's not... Um, just going along with the flow, and it's like no, because what you're doing isn't actually being nice. But it's 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 the whole it's, denial. It, it, denial, but it, it's 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 the the males. There's a character who says something to another character, which also kind of I like because it kind of plays on the goodwill hunting scene. Yeah, if it's not your fault, it's not your fault, and it's just like, yeah, it's just. Brainwashing, which is very unnerving and very confusing and very upsetting. I think, I think it's very good for guys to watch though, because therefore you can watch it and now you can be like, actually, no, that I've seen it from the other side. That is not good behavior. Mm-hmm. So I can now call people out Absolutely. for doing that. And I think even if guys watched it and then saw one, watching oh, my mate say stuff like that and it looks really bad in this film, maybe I should say to him next time, he just actually, that, that's probably, they're probably not going to take that as a joke, they're probably going to take that more as a threat. Yeah. Then, that, that, that's, the, that, that's probably the best thing. But yeah, I, I'm really happy that you chose this movie. It, it, it yeah, was... see what car crash I picked next. <laughs> but yeah, I say I fully, fully stand that it, it, again, in 50 years, 
it, it will be this slice of what life was for a certain generation, generation and gender. It was, and so one of what really is one of the strongest debuts has been in last sort of like twenty years. And like I said, it's, she can she can make no other film, and she'd still go down as one of my favorite directors just cool. for this film. Yeah. Anything else you want to add? Go watch it. Brilliant. Don't at me if you don't like it. Well, that's it for Promising Young Woman. Yay! And that's it for another episode. And next week, back to me. Yes. I think I've already chose my three, but my second one, I'm... Is it going to be a head scratcher? Am I going to have to switch my brain on? Um, That means yes. Well, I don't think it's a head scratcher. It might have... I was say, Is it under three hours? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I was going to say emotional scratcher, scratcher there, but that doesn't make any sense. Am I going to cry? Maybe. Okay. So my, next week, I have chosen Barry Jenkins' Moonlight. Maybe I haven't. I don't think you have. Okay. Um, so it's the Oscar winner, the controversial Oscar winner. Oh, that one. No, I haven't seen that one. I saw the other one that well, won we, the Oscar. Well, we went to see that in the cinema. But yeah, so <laughs> Moonlight, um, Barry Jenkins. I was very torn to pick this or his second. Well, no, it's actually his third film because um, he didn't make a film before Moonlight. Um, if Bill's, if Bill Street could talk, but I've settled on Moonlight just because of the impact that it had at the time. Okay. And yeah, we'll get that watched. Sounds and good. We will come back next week. So that is goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. See you next week. Bye.